What's up, everybody? Stu Blackwell here with another episode of the Warrior Legacy Podcast. Got a great one for you today, but before we get to that, a few updates for everybody on the front end. So, some exciting things going on with the family that I want to share with y'all. So, first off, um, my youngest son, or excuse me, my oldest son, actually, Alexander, he trains in Taekwondo, for those of you guys that don't know, um, or for those of y'all that are new to the podcast and haven't heard me discuss uh, how awesome this kid is before, okay? Um, and he spends a minimum, a minimum of about five hours a week or so training on his own so that he can get better, okay? And this last week um, on Friday, we took a boys trip down to the CTF tournament, is a regional tournament um, that uh, helps factor into his national ranking and everything like that with my father and both of my boys for him to get some new competition, okay? Some some people that he's never seen before that are going to help push him a little bit. And he crushed it, all right? And I can see it in, in his different uh, sparring bouts and everything, man. Like, this kid adapted to each and every single opponent that he faced based on what they were doing, okay? Now, this is nothing new to you if you, you know, if you watch UFC or, you know, if you're heavy into fight sports and stuff like that. This kid's nine years old. All right. That's the impressive part about it. And while I, I know for certain that, you know, my example with, you know, being very disciplined with my training and with, and with my nutrition and stuff has, you know, implicitly spoken to him. Okay. At the end of the day, he's the one in the arena. He's the one that makes the decision to sacrifice doing other things so that he can train and get better. All right. And I got to tell you, like, as a dad, seeing my son have that kind of dedication, that kind of discipline, and his commitment to development is truly humbling. It's one of the best feelings in the world to see him value that. Okay. And that's what's really important, you know. And I tell him all the time, and, and I think this has taken hold with him, is uh, the results. Okay, getting that gold medal, that giant trophy, that's nothing more than a confirmation of the journey. Okay, so that's the big thing that's going on with the Blackwell family right now. Uh, So kudos and huge shout out to my oldest son, Alexander, for being so awesome. Um, Book update for everybody. So for those of you all that don't know, I wrote a book about um, infantry culture during the global war on terror era and based it off of my experiences and the incredible leaders that I had and how they imprinted on me throughout my time in the infantry. And that's been submitted to the Department of Defense for their review, which we just got word that is actually finally out of the queue and been assigned to somebody for them to uh, start taking a look at, and um, they're going to get back to me God knows when because it's government bureaucracy, and we all know how that works, okay? But it is a step forward. If you guys follow me on Instagram at ST Blackwell or on Facebook, um, you guys are going to be getting updates on this as they happen, okay? And another thing, too, uh, if you keep an eye on tactical16.com, that's my publisher's website. They should have my author's page up here pretty soon. So be on the lookout for a cover reveal and some other cool things coming down the pipes with that, okay? Now, um, we're going to roll the ad and we're going to get into this week's episode, which is going to build on what we've been speaking about previously. So if you haven't heard uh, the last two episodes specifically, they kind of feed into what we're going into today. But let's go on and get the ad out of the way and then we can get to all the cool shit.
What's up, everybody? All right, so last week we covered the military archetype of the robot. And what that briefly entails is the manner in which, you know, uh, certain outside agencies like, uh, like Hollywood, uh, recruiting campaigns from the services and, you know, big media outlets and stuff, and how they present service members as these very, like, rigid automatons, you know, with very little free thought and ingenuity, more of just sledgehammers, okay? And today, what we're going to do is we're going to highlight how that narrative changed throughout the global war on terror and how it affected public perception of us and the type of recruits that we wanted, okay, to come in after us and why we were over there, which is really the main important thing, okay? Now, we're going to do this by kind of setting the stage through a, a very, and I stress very, very general flow of events, all right? Now, the reason why that's important is because it's going to help us identify how and why that narrative changed, and fair warning, it's not pretty, okay? There's going to be plenty of what I like to call uh, torch and pitchfork moments, okay, where some people listening, and hell, maybe everybody listening, probably wants to skin me alive, okay? But that's okay. Now, I need to preface this by also saying that I did not fight in Iraq, okay? I fought in Afghanistan, okay, which is very, very different experiences, all right? I can't look at anybody else's experience and say that they're wrong, even if it's different from mine. That's not my place, nor would I ever want to do that, okay? But this is based off of the study that I've done since I came back from Afghanistan, um, and I was there both as, as a Marine Infantry Squad leader in 2010 and also later on as a uh, security contractor, okay? Now, where we're going to start with today is, um, you know, for those of you that are old enough, if y'all remember 9-11 and you remember what the general attitude of our country was and the justification that we had. Um, now, <clears throat> you, you really can't debate it. Okay, 9-11 was all the justification that we needed, and it's regrettable that it happened, okay? But what I picked up from it, and I'm what, pretty sure what a lot of other people picked up from it, the general attitude of the country was more along the lines of, hey, um, you know, these terrorists murdered thousands of our countrymen. So we are justified in pursuing them and hunting them down and killing them, Okay. Um, and we also understood, like, it was a harsh wake-up call. Like, the rest of the world does not play by our rules, okay? Um, it doesn't have to be another near-peer military attacking us in order for us to be at war. And I'm, as critical as I am of politicians, um, I have to give them kudos for being aggressive about it instead of being overly timid, okay? The initial response that we had, I thought was very measured, okay? We had small special forces teams uh, inserted to assist the local warlords that were there and, you know, the, empowering them to hunt down and kill the people that were responsible for that, with the end goal being, of course, to uh, capture or kill bin Laden. Now, he proved a lot more elusive than anticipated, which is ironic given his technological inferiority and that of his forces as well. Even with all the stuff they had left over from the Russian invasion that took place in you know the late 70s and uh, on into the late 80s, around the time that I was born. But what that did was, is that kind of put us in a fork in the road moment, okay? 
And we kind of had to ask ourselves, well, how far do we lean into this? Okay. Because we already knew that it was going to take a lot more and it was going to take more than just our soft teams that were on the ground. But the question was, is how far do we go with it? Or do we stay patient? Do we stick with the lean agile teams and give them all the support that they need and leave this mainly in the hands of the local Afghans? Or do we beef up the forces? Okay. Now, our technological advantages and the dominance of our special warfare operators was very clear in direct combat. That cannot be denied. Okay. But it really wasn't enough to stymie DCs and patients. And that's sad, but it's just frankly true. Okay. Now, at this point, um, this is where like the military industrial complex kind of kicked into high gear. Okay. So for those of y'all that haven't heard that term before, the military industrial complex is, um, it's essentially like the, the big conglomeration and the relationship between ginormous defense contractors and Washington and how they lobby, how they interact with each other and how they secure funding for these big, massive projects that produce, you know, almost every single piece of gear for the armed services. And that could be the next caliber that a rifle fires, or it could be all the way up to a nuclear warhead. It's anything and everything. Okay. Um, and a lot of times that's made out to be this like big, evil, terrible thing. But if you think about it, it's essential. Like it has to happen. Okay. If we want to stay on par with the competition in the rest of the world, we have to be constantly developing new ways to fight. If nothing else, just as a deterrent. Okay. But the problem with it is, is that while it is essential, it is also just like any organization, especially in a country where we live so comfortably, it is easily corruptible as well. And it's subject to human nature. Okay. So as the line of thinking went, or at least so I believe, is that a longer and a bigger war equals more money. You know, more defense contracts that cost a whole lot more money, makes a whole lot more people richer, and it kind of drags things out a little bit so everybody can make sure that they get their hands in the pot. And that's a win-win for politicians and defense contractors both, okay? So more troops and more tech were the proposed answer to, hey, this guy's elusive as hell. We need to find him. We need to try and end this, you know, relatively quickly as long as we can still get what we want out of it. And what that materialized into was a whole slew of technological advances that changed the way that we were fighting this war. Okay, and it was very different than the wars that we have fought in the past. Okay, uh, satellites, a uh, plethora of different kind of sensor arrays, blue force trackers that help commanders on the ground know exactly where friendly units are from all the way across the country of Afghanistan and Iraq. Okay, bombs that were guided by satellites instead of only troops on the ground looking through binoculars and stuff like that. Okay, advancements like these were introduced. As the war expanded into Iraq in 2003, which required two things, okay? First was a more technically proficient and smarter warfighter, which further disproves the robot mentality that we discussed in the last episode, all right? So if you guys haven't listened to that one, go back, get that knowledge. It's going to explain things a whole lot more clearly when it comes to robots and automatons and how some people can view service members as 
not really doing anything else other than just taking orders and charging up the hill, okay? The second thing that this required was new justifications that proved far more dangerous and costly than anybody anticipated. Now, whether or not we agree with the decision to invade or, you know, how the war was fought is irrelevant, okay? Because DC makes that decision regardless of what anybody else thinks. And that should be remembered every time that Americans go to the polls, okay? Now, bear in mind that while all this is going on back home, troops are still fighting hard, mainly against the formal Iraqi army in this early stage, okay, which didn't last long, just like in Desert Storm. And after they were destroyed, the fighting then mutated into a insurgency, which was, frankly speaking, inevitable following the power vacuum that was created by the fall of Saddam Hussein's regime. This is not new, and this is not rocket science, okay? But just stick with me here for a little bit longer, all right? Now, the reason why this happened is Iraq and very similarly Afghanistan doesn't claim the same national identity that we do. They're still largely, you know, tribal societies, okay? So when one tribe or group or, you know, regime is defeated, the others don't just roll over. That's one of the main differences that I noticed between us and them while I was over there. Now, if you guys remember, though, this is not our first rodeo, okay? A similar experience um, if we look to our own history, can be found in our war against the American Indians from the mid to late 1800s, in which you know most of the eastern United States Indian tribes were the first to fall either in combat or by you know fighting each other, and the Comanches out west on the Great Plains held firm until the bitter end. And as the fighting continued, uh, some of the scenarios that we discussed in the previous episode concerning the, the robot mentality, um, they facilitated this, this restraint on the troops. Okay, So civilian casualties, um, errant close air support, and uh, call for fire in heavily populated areas, the Haditha massacre, um, you know, the mistreatment of prisoners in um, Abu Ghraib, uh, all these things gave our politicians the ammunition that they needed to pull back on the reins. And it's important to note that while these things happened, okay, and regrettably so, they weren't as rampant or widespread as they were made out to be, okay? But it gave them the ammunition that they needed. And as politicians, you know, always say, or at least their actions portray, they're never going to let a good crisis go to waste, okay? But in order to justify expansion and long-term fighting, okay, the narrative had to change too. Now, judgment from 9-11, just, it wasn't good enough anymore because it didn't justify the massive expenditures of blood and treasure. A new answer to the question of why are we still over there was needed. And something to consider here, okay? One of the things that makes this war very different than all, the, all past wars is because it was also fought on the internet, okay? And the terrorist propaganda machine that leveraged this masterfully, frankly, made ours look juvenile, okay? But Washington still had to maintain the appearance of the moral high ground, okay? Now, when we view it from this perspective, it appears that this, this shift could have been the one that brought the next narrative archetype to the forefront, okay? And that's going to be the protector, Right? The robot vision had run its course 
during the initial invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, but now moved to the back of the line, which made way for the protector, quote-unquote, to step up. Okay, Now, what's going on here, essentially, is our politicians and our media outlets are kind of cycling these archetypes uh, so that they can make it fit what they want people to think. Okay, it's quite manipulative in my opinion. All right. Now, we established that the robot archetype isn't an accurate portrayal of our generation of warfighter in the last episode. Okay, so just understand that that comment is directed solely at the view of troops as robots and not who they actually were themselves. Okay, and we'll get into that a little bit more later on. Now, I've spit out some pretty seemingly inflammatory things thus far, okay? So let's turn to a few pieces of evidence here that kind of detail the attitude of narrative control that I'm talking about here when it comes to specifically to service members being protectors, okay? What I'm about to read, okay, is a little bit lengthy, lengthy, but I feel is very relevant to the topic, okay? And this is President Bush's 2008 address from Bagram Air Force Base, okay? Now, uh, we start a little bit further into his speech, okay? But here it goes, okay? So, open quotes, uh, removing the Taliban was a landmark achievement, but our work did not end there. See, we could have replaced one group of thugs with another strongman, but all that would have done is invited the same problems that brought us the Al-Qaeda safe havens and the attacks on America in the first place. Those were the mistakes of the 1980s and 1990s, and we were not going to repeat them again in the 21st century. So America's set an ambitious goal to help Afghanistan's young democracy grow and thrive and emerge as an alternative to the ideology of hate and extremism and terror. This is a difficult and long effort. It's not easy to do this. It would have been so much simpler to say, we got rid of one bunch and here's another one, but that's not what we believe is right. We want to lay the foundation of peace for generations to come. We want to do the hard work now so our children and our grandchildren can grow up in a peaceful world. So we rally good allies to our side, including every member of NATO. We develop civilian experts in the form of civilian reconstruction teams. And together with the determined people of Afghanistan, we are making hopeful gains. Thanks to you, girls are back in school across Afghanistan. Does that matter? I think it does. I think it does. Thanks to you, boys are playing soccer again and flying kites and learning to be Boy Scouts. Thanks to you, across access to health care is up dramatically. Thanks to you, Afghanistan's economy has more than doubled in size. And thanks to you, the Afghan people are preparing to go to the polls next year for another round of free elections. Thanks to you, Afghanistan has a democratic government that is no longer an enemy of America. It is a friend of America. So there's a whole lot to unpack there, all right? But um, there's nothing wrong with being a protector, okay? And there are certainly many instances of soldiers and Marines deliberately placing themselves in between civilians 
an incoming fire, even at, at, at great risk or actual injury to themselves. All right, some were even killed doing this. Okay, and that is noble. It is worthy of recognition. It's not wrong. Okay, but it becomes dangerous when it becomes the expectation. When protection over destruction of the enemy is demanded, either implicitly or directly. Okay? But considering everything that we discussed on this podcast about the purpose of the infantry, okay, which is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy through fire and maneuver, or repel the enemy assault through fire and close combat. Okay? But also considering the necessity for its separate culture, which we've also identified, I'll ask the same question that I posed several episodes prior. Okay. Is the man who places himself in mortal danger to protect people better or more noble than the man who maneuvers through fire to annihilate the enemy? Think about that one for a second. Really think about it. Okay, the former is certainly more celebrated than the latter. And I don't think that's the way that it should be. Okay, where the protector narrative gets it wrong is that it paints the picture that the collective priority was protecting Afghans instead of each other and killing the enemy, okay? Now, during our war, the global war on terror, it, it answered the, the why are we over there question with something like uh, the local Afghan deserves a better life and it's our responsibility to provide it to them. But it wasn't our responsibility. And that's not why many of us went over there. And when protection at the expense of the service member becomes expected, then it's no longer a job for the infantry. We can do it, okay, as we very clearly exemplified over the course of the last 20 years of warfare, but we're going to be a lot better off going to a, a government entity that is better trained and more in line with that type of mission statement, okay? Now, we're going to see exactly how how this affects the narrative in the next episode and how it progresses. Okay. The surprising thing is, is that the protector was a, a sort of hard shift from the robot type. Okay. And our next representation is, is, is a seamless transition that when we really dig into it, it reveals just how far we got from our original goals as a country at the start of this whole thing. Okay. This episode today was it was a little tough for me, okay, because protect, protecting my family and teaching them to protect themselves is, is part of my purpose as a man. And as I continue my development as a father, I'm reminded that my ability to do that is dependent on my physical and mental state, okay? I should be able to lift a car if someone is trapped underneath it, okay, or beat an aggressor to death with my bare hands if the need arises, okay? Chances are it won't. But if it does and I'm not prepared, then I become a liability to my family instead of the man that solves the problem, which is unacceptable. But my current phase of life, which is natural in the progression of a father, that doesn't change the fact that the infantry is not and has never been meant for protection or the satisfaction of a politician's whims. So as we close everything out today, I want you guys to think about a couple of things, all right? Uh, first off, okay, I, I understand that 
the last couple of episodes have been largely negative. There hasn't been a whole lot of good pulled away from it, all right? That doesn't mean that there wasn't good that didn't come from the wars that we fought and from our experiences. Nothing could be further from the truth, okay? And we are going to be getting into that. But in order to do this analysis justice, we have to focus on these things. We have to understand them. We have to understand how they fit together. Okay, and I want you to bear that in mind, especially as we move into next week's episode, all right, where we talk about kind of the final perception, okay, and the final representation of service members and how that came about, because it's crucially important to tie in all of this together, okay? Um, I can't thank you enough for spending your time here today, okay? Follow me on Instagram at stblackwell. Look me up on Facebook. Shoot me an email at sblackwell0412 at gmail.com. Okay? And keep your eyes peeled for further updates about the book and for the next episode that should be coming out sometime next week. Get savage and stay savage, everybody.